Good morning. Welcome back to the Broadcast Retirement Network. I'm Jeff Snyder. This is BRN Sunday for Sunday, August 28th, 2022. We've got another great show for you this week. We've got members of the media, academia, and financial services standing by as we analyze all the news and events for the week. So sit back, relax, enjoy this episode of BRN Sunday. Well, the same happening on Capitol Hill and in and around the retirement ecosystem. Joining us on the line, they're better known as the Legal Eagles, but they're also known as David Levine, Kevin Walsh. Both are principals with Groom Law Group. That's an employee benefits law firm based in Washington, D.C. Gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us on the program this morning. Jeff, it is great to be here with you, and it's great to be with all the listeners as well. Well, let's uh, let's jump right in, gentlemen. And, and so we're going to put aside the politics but I want to talk about ESG because you and I and others have talked about how ESG works in the ERISA framework and what's going on at the Department of Labor. But recently, some states have issued their own rules or guidance around where their assets can be invested in terms of the ESG. So um, I don't know who wants to start off. But I wanted to kind of talk about the reconciliation between what states do on this topic as well as what the federal government does and how they work or not work together. Thanks, Jeff. And, you know, I think ESG is an issue that, that we'll try to avoid the politics, but in some ways it's, it's been political for a while. Um, and I, I think you can kind of highlight that by looking at what's gone on at the Labor Department with respect to taking environmental, social, and governance factors into account um, when investing 401k money. Um, and there, you know, the rule has traditionally been, you know, you've got to act solely in the economic interest of participants and beneficiaries. But if there's a tie, um, then you can take environmental, social governance factors into account. Um, and in terms of what different administrations have said, you know, Democratic administrations have tended to say, you know, ties happen with some regularity. Essentially, they're using a Sharpie. Mm-hmm. Um to do that, to, to draw that tie line. Um, and Republicans tend to say, you know, only if there's a tie, but they use kind of a microscope and then, you know, something even finer than that to draw that line, um, saying, you know, ties rarely, rarely happen. Most recently in 2020, uh, the Republican, uh, the most recent Republican administration finalized rules related to ESG investing for ERISA plans. Uh, and under those rules, they said, you know, you can use it as a tiebreaker. Um, but if you do, you've got to, you know, do a fair amount of record keeping as another way of throwing some cold water on on taking ESG factors into account. Um, and then for default investment options, the rules were even more strict um, and essentially, you know, precluded large swaths of, of, you know, ESG being taken into account for uh, default investment options. Now, Democrats took over in 2021. Um, those rules, they've put out guidance saying they're not going to enforce the Republican era rules and they're undergoing rulemaking right now, um, you know, to to become more ESG friendly uh, in the ERISA space. But so at the, the federal level, there's been a fair amount of ping ponging with kind of the, the consistent underlying messages, you know, 
take the economic interests into account. And if there's a tie, take ESGN. Um, but how you define a tie has, has really changed over the years. Um, and some states, you know, looking at, at the likely outcome with the Biden administration's rewrite of the rule seem to be, you know, leaping ahead. Um, David, do you want to talk about what we're seeing at the state level and how they interact? Sure, absolutely. And on the state level, it's been an interesting world we've been in because states, especially a lot of governmental plans, and again, we're staying out of politics today, uh, there have been a number of governmental plans over time that have looked at the Department of Labor ESG rules, and some of them have said, we are going to not look at ESG at all. Some have said we're going to look at, I'll call it economic ESG, which, you know, Kevin talks about the ping-ponging, but it's basically ESG through an economic lens, which in some ways balances a lot with both the Democrat or Republican DOL one, depending on exactly how it's implemented. And others have sort of said ESG has reasoning beyond even pure economics that's valid for a plan. There is no ERISA rules there, and each state has different laws. So the states have gone different ways. At times when there may have been a more conservative reading on ESG, you've probably seen a number of states, not all of them, where they've taken probably the the more, more liberal reading of it. Uh, but when it goes more liberal, they pick that up too. But there's also a movement in some states right now, like you've, Florida is an example, where there where there is a move to say ESG should not be used, period. And that is just a discussion item in some of those states, and some of them are making policy. Mm -hmm. So the governmental space and the governmental plans, they, they because they're not subject to ERISA, they do march to their own drum, and there's 50 states plus territories like D.C., where we are, of course, uh, that, that have their own set of local laws, laws about fiduciary. So therefore, the states, while they sometimes are innovators because they're not bound by ERISA, they also can go in many different ways. So wherever the Biden administration goes will be looked to by some, but not by others. But the states, each of them, especially when you get back to politics, are going to go in a lot of different ways. But that's how I avoid getting too political, Jeff. <laughs> well, that's good. And let me just follow up. Um, I don't know if there's a similar analogy. Forgetting ESG, is there – Something similar that we have talked about or that you all are aware of, either in the retirement or benefit space, where, hey, you know, things happen on the state level uh, that may be a little bit different. And does the federal rule – do the federal rules trump um, uh, the state sure. rules? The answer is is in the – is that in some areas, there are federal rules that trump, for instance – if you have a 401k plan, which many states don't for a complex historical reason, but let's say you have a defined benefit pension plan. A defined benefit pension plan is subject to a lot, but not all, of the Internal Revenue Code rules that govern an ERISA-covered tax-qualified plan. Uh -huh. There you have to comply with the IRS rules. Separate and distinct, though, is on the fiduciary side, that is a wide-open space. So there is examples on – saying you have to comply with, just to get really geeky for a moment, with the required minimum distribution rules, kicking money out at age 72. Your governmental plan, you have to apply a reasonable, good-faith interpretation of that, but you got to follow those. But here, ERISA doesn't apply. So oftentimes the states will look. Another area that comes up, for instance, is electronic delivery and fee disclosure. When you have tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of participants in your plan, 
some of the DOL rules could be costly and drive up expenses. And there may be ways that the states innovate on their own, and some of them have, and not necessarily follow the DOL rules. So the example might be disclosures as well. Uh, gentlemen, in terms of uh, – I don't know. I don't, cleaning up is not the right word, but um, rat, uh, you know, going between these different sets of rules. I mean this is something that the Department of Labor would look at and say, okay, well, Texas is doing this, and Florida is doing this, and so how do we bring it back um, – how do we bring it back to what we're doing here at the Department of Labor to either obfuscate or carve out what the states are doing or bring in some of those ideas um, into their – into the federal regs? I mean does that does that sound something yeah. that likely to happen? I'm sorry. I'll, I'll jump on that, Jeff. I think the states – there was a lot of discussion about the IRS, for instance, looking at state plans – in the early 2000s, 2009, 2010 type of 2008 type of period, the state plans they op- and, and the state and local operate in their own space. The, while they will sometimes engage just to discuss with the AOL, the idea that they would be in the middle of advocacy or deep discussions with the AOL, sure, there's some communication sometimes, but to but it, it, the the state plans, and because this is another political issue, there are some in Congress who would like to make state plans subject to a governmental ERISA, mm-hmm. and a lot of the states like are say, well, that's our own sovereign decision. We don't want that. Right. So I think that the idea that they would get heavily engaged in this, pretty unlikely, is my is my take on it. And and that's where I was when you when you were describing the, when you two were describing this, I immediately circled back to. That conversation many many years ago around those auto IRA programs and are they subject to you know ERISA or are they not? And obviously you brought that up and, and cleared that up. I guess my last question before I let you gentlemen um, skate away, and, and maybe this is more towards what Kevin was talking about. Sam, an employer, uh, and I'm deciding whether or not I want to uh, include ESG options in my plan. Um, and I'm in a state that has these rules. How do I – do I need to be cognizant of that? Do I need to contact my benefits attorneys to walk me through that? And and secondly, do – or maybe this, it's tertiary at this point, but do I need to be cognizant of whether or not I have empl- employees in different states? So for example, if I have employees in Indiana, but I also have employees in, in Florida or I have employees in Texas, does that matter? And so my I, response I, is – Go ahead, Kevin. You guys. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, I, I think that's a great question. I, I, you know, as we watch this evolve, I, I think folks may want to tread carefully if they're in, in some of those states. Um, you know, ERISA preemption is very broad, and you can see how, you know, ERISA preemption could come into play. Um, that being said, you know, ERISA preemption's not a not a, a surefire lock. And and one thing that you could see is that you know an administration today could say you can take those into account, and you might you know put, push for preemption, but you know, by the time these cases get decided, you may have an administration that that is no longer supportive of the the ESG aims. So I, it, it's an issue that ping pongs, and you know, I, I think there's compelling arguments on both sides here. Um, so, you know, in, in terms of how the, the state and go on, David. I was going to add, and 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 Jeff, this gets to a very political issue. We've seen, I'll call it long arm type of laws, like what you've seen with different rules about abortion and 
and about being able to enforce and state regulators saying to companies, why are you doing this? Putting aside even the legal, there's a whole framework out there that could make this messy. But legally, the basics is a risk of preemption, I would argue. And, you know, you can argue where preemption begins and ends. But at the same time, you would argue a risk of preemption there. But the entire evolution of this landscape and what is preempted and how people are writing some unique laws these days, there's a lot of discussions that can be. Yeah. Well, certainly very interesting. It's an ebb and a flow. Gentlemen, we're going to leave it there. Thanks for stopping by, for sharing your insight, and we'll have to watch how this one develops over the next several months and probably into 2023. Thanks so much for joining us. We look forward to having you back on the program again very soon, gents. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, listeners. Bye, boys. Welcome back. Now we're going to close out the show with a look at what's happening in the market. Lots happening this week, and a lot of people have seen the news, um, market volatility, and, and maybe some positive stock market gains as well. Joining me on the line, he is the lead anchor for the TD Ameritrade Network. You know him as well, Oliver Rennick. Oliver, thanks so much for uh, joining yep. us on the program this morning. Absolutely. Thanks, as always, for the invite. Oh, well, thanks for taking the invite. You know, you don't have to do that. I'm sure you get lots of invites during the week, but we appreciate you stopping by. So, Oliver, um, this is, a, I guess, a big week in the sense that uh, Jay Powell, who is the Federal Reserve Chairman, and others are out in uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And I want to get your reaction to some of the remarks. But first, what is this uh I guess, annual gathering, and, and why aren't we invited? Because <laughs> uh, we're not that important. Um, <laughs> In our own minds. <laughs> well, if you were, uh, no, if, uh, you know, a lot of journalists go, and a lot of uh, uh, central bankers and um, uh, economists, but it's uh, basically just your annual symposium, uh, I guess the technical uh, word they like to use, hosted by the Kansas City Fed, but the highlight is essentially uh, the Federal Reserve Chairman will speak, uh, make an address, and set the tone um, for the coming year of policy. Uh, and this year, it is about um, policy constraints, and uh, that is very symbolic of the regime we're in. And uh, Jerome Powell certainly lived up to that title by emphasizing the degree for restraint that they will be imposing on the economy and the market. And it was, uh, in my mind, some of the strongest wording he has used to date. So when you say restraint, does that refer to interest rate? Uh, yeah, restraining the economy's potential, I guess, is a better way to put it. Constraints, Constraints. probably the better word. Okay, well, yeah. you, you know, you're, you're high, more highly educated than I am. Uh, okay, so how, did, <laughs> how did, that is without doubt. Uh, so, Oliver, how did the market react to these comments and you know it, it just seems that as you and i have been talking together for many many years you know the market just sits on with bated breath for federal reserve chairman powell and other federal reserve chairmen or chairpersons i guess uh to react or to respond or to give a comment so how did the how has the market re reacted not well uh stocks dropped and the dollar uh, was very volatile and bonds were very volatile. And uh, to some, this was a bit of a surprise because the language that he used largely echoed what 
his other peers at the Federal Reserve have been using. Uh, but there is certainly a distinction when it comes from the chair himself, who generally has a reputation of wanting to calm markets. And that is not really the case anymore. I don't think it's been that way for a better part of a year. But uh, generally, people have, um, I think, overestimated his desire to pacify markets. He has been generally giving hints for a year and a half that he will be comfortable with volatility. And uh, this uh, particular speech explicitly, though, was very focused on their willingness to accept weakness in the economy as uh, the cost of their inflation cutting program as a expected side effect of bringing inflation down. And that is a little bit, um, it's not new, but to hear him really focus on that with his opening statement, and then again, as he's done in the past, look to Volcker and Greenspan for guidance and um, framework. Those um, are, of course, our Federal Reserve chairmans in the past who have tightened uh, the reins and in the case of Greenspan, basically popped the dot-com bubble mm -hmm. and Volcker attacking the 70s inflation. So both of those, as Powell's sort of guiding light, suggest that he is thinking big picture and long term. And there was um, a specific wording in his language on Friday about the long term um, plan that they have that, that really stands out uh, because he's not hinting at any potential cuts down the road. Uh, he is more specifically telling us that they're going to keep rates elevated. He also specifically said that peak inflation is not evident to him, that we need more than a month of data, uh -huh. and uh, that they will be acting with resolve to prevent high inflation from spreading. So even though this is largely in line with what we've heard from other recent hawkish Fed commentary, it is pretty explicitly opposed to the prevailing narrative that bullish investors have been using to uh, buy stocks in the second half of the summer and then the two-month rally that brought the NASDAQ up more than 20% off the lows. And that's where we have now potential for uh, volatility in the market that we're seeing. Oliver, I want to ask you, and I'm not sure there's a direct correlation here, but I want to ask you about some policy that came out of the White House in the last couple of days, and that's student loan forgiveness. And uh, you know, you, no matter what side you sit on in terms of forgiving student loans, uh, I guess the question I have for you as someone who is an, a student of the market and follows the market, is there any direct correlation um, from the student loan forgiveness, does it affect things like inflation, and does it affect the general stock market? Uh, it's So far, it looks like it hasn't had any effect on the market. Um, you would think that just kind of logically, um, uh, forgiving uh, $10,000 loans for uh, uh, individuals would create improved cash flow. Mm -hmm and uh, spending power, um, but it's unclear really how that compares to what the Fed is doing, unwinding the balance sheet, uh, what inflation is doing. 
I think um, on the margin, it uh, certainly is a stimulative thing. I mean, it's no question about that in the short term. Uh, but um, the cost associated from the government standpoint, um, it's just kind of unclear. But generally, I mean, you are taking on. It's not like the debt goes away. Some government's taking on, and so the taxpayer is taking on. But it's hard to know, really. I don't have the economic chops to say. Uh, whether or not it's uh, what its impact will be on the economy. But just in the short term, if you're somebody who was planning to start paying their loans again, um, you know, at an X amount per month, uh, you, you just got cash flow. So short term, I mean, it definitely has a stimulative impact. Long term, I, I, I couldn't uh, uh, I couldn't uh, offer an explanation there. Yeah, does any? But does anyone really know? I mean, everyone's going to re- react differently with having, <laughs> having more money in their account if they're were supposed sure. to pay off student loans, and you know they could save the money, they could spend the money. You're right; it could have a real stimulative effect. Uh, last last question for you, Oliver. World markets. Uh, when you look at, uh, I guess we're in an endemic phase with COVID, at least here in the states, but uh, around the globe. I mean, Japan relaxing its uh, COVID restrictions to incite more tourism, right? I mean, I think they've just been, bump, you know, destroyed, decimated. Uh, we think back to the Olympics, but how has the world uh, markets reacted, I guess, to Jay Powell, uh, Jay Powell's speech, and in general to what's happening here in the states? I think that right now the U.S. is still very much setting the tone for global financial markets, uh, given that global financial markets are trending downward. And the Fed is tightening policy, which is the main cause of the sell-off in stocks over the last nine months. That being said, there is um, quite a bit of variance in regional economies at this point, where Europe is in the middle of a massive energy crisis. One of our guests described Europe's economy as imploding this past week, um, where the crude equivalent price of natural gas would be like $500 or something. So there's some pretty amazing statistics that offer a way to understand just energy crises in Europe. And then in China, they're trying to reopen and um, restart their economy. And part of the process is slashing interest rates. So they're doing the exact opposite of what we are doing, but it hasn't put an obvious bid into Chinese stocks. It hasn't, been an obvious catalyst for upside in the Chinese market, which is basically sideways over the last five months. Uh, so it seems that the most important and frankly most interesting action is happening here stateside as the U.S. dollar tries to break out again. And that's really the driving force for everything we see. As the dollar breaks out, if it does, that's what we're watching here over the next few days. If the dollar makes a new high, which it's trying to right now, uh, then you would expect the 10-year yield to follow uh, higher, and you'd expect stocks to keep going down. Yeah. Uh, Oliver, next week we head – it's the week before Labor Day. Is that typically a um, a higher, lower-volume week? I mean I think people are usually checked out, right, um, before the holiday. It will depend. If stocks are down, it will be higher volume. There's more volume if stocks are down. That's just pretty much how it works. The direction of the market really is more important than the calendar. Yeah. Well, Oliver, we're going to leave it there. Thanks so much for stopping by. Interesting analysis. And uh, don't forget to check out Oliver's show on the TD 
uh, Ameritrade Network. You can find it at uh, on pretty much every possible app or streaming platform. Oliver, great to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining us, and we look forward to having you back on the program again very soon, my friend. All right. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks. Bye-bye. And that wraps up this episode of BRN Sunday. Have a topic of interest, someone you think we should talk to, drop us a line. And don't forget, for all the latest curated news and lifestyle, wellness, finance, tech, so much more, and all in one place, check out today's edition of our daily newsletter, The Morning Pulse. Want to search our archives, check out our latest content? Well, visit our website and, of course, our streaming partners. We're back again tomorrow for another edition of BRN AM. We'll have a very special guest. Until then, I'm Jeff Snyder. Stay safe, keep on saving, and don't forget, roll with the changes.